0: RUDE is recorded on the unceded, traditional territory of the Kanyankahaga people, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations.
1: Hi, I'm Barbara. I'm Emily. I'm Michael. And I'm Daniela. And this is RUDE, a podcast where we push back. So, what are we talking about today, Barbara? This episode is titled Allyship, WTF.
2: Ooh, what a sticky subject. Oh. I guess that's what the WTF is about. Mm -hmm.
3: But why are we talking about this?
0: Allyship has become such a major buzzword lately. People have used it a lot, for example, with hashtag MeToo. But even in real life, like in protests, are allies, quote unquote, actually willing to put their bodies on the line? Mm
3: -hmm. Is MeToo not real life?
0: It can be real life. I mean, offline life.
3: Offline, that physical activism.
0: Yes. And this word itself has elicited different reactions from different people.
2: Yeah, I guess we've seen it ourselves um, just during this year of living together. One of the most important conversations that we've been having amongst ourselves, right, as a group is this allyship concept. And it's risen to the surface a lot because each of us hold, um, I guess, different kind of privilege is a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of
1: privilege, the only man on our podcast team is a cisgender white male. (laughs) So, Michael. Yes. I noticed that you've gotten your shit together this year.
3: C- uh oh. Can you tell
1: us a little bit about that? <laughs>
3: well, what exactly are we referring to here? There's a lot of shit as a cis white dude oh, ain't that the truth. to get together. Let's that be real. That's the
1: truth. Uh, I'm talking about your career
3: specifically. Mm, I think you're referring to my career as a hip hop artist. That's the one.
1: Hippity hop.
3: So, I mean, it. it It's interesting to unpack, right? I became a hip hop artist because I faced what I felt were some certain challenges as a young person, learning disabilities, troubled home life, school was an issue um, that led me to feel like I had a lot to say. I was also really rhythmically and poetically inclined and I resonated with this voice of resistance, this voice of rebellion that hip hop really espoused. Um, and it wasn't until much later in life that I came to an understanding of the difference between the struggles I was facing as a person and the struggles hip hop artists who started the, who started hip hop culture were speaking back against when they came up with graffiti and DJing and break dancing and production. Uh, and I started writing my own songs when I was like 13 and I didn't really re- you know, come to consciousness around the differences between myself and hip hop artists of color until I was like 26. So uh, a lot of who I am and a lot of the values I espouse came from my experiences in hip hop. And I actually kind of credit hip hop and and my life therein with the reasons behind why I am who I am and what, you know, relative critical consciousness I hold. Um, And so it wasn't, I think 20 2014 I kind of came to an understanding of the difference between myself and, and hip hop artists. And I was like, look, this is really way too close. In fact, it's very much the same as the colonial violence that communities of color have faced at the hands of white people historically with white people coming in and taking and co-opting and profiting off of cultural production that was actually meant to combat white supremacy. And so, I couldn't even put pen to paper after that and only this year 2018 was I like look I'm retired I'm not pursuing this as something that's like my main financial exploration any longer Mm. and uh yeah put the pen down and I think allyship for me is something that's ongoing and it's something that's important for me not to seek like accolades for what's important for me is to be willing to have a conversation and to recognize my position and to uh you know, share this experience because I hope that others can learn from it.
0: Hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. And also no cookies for you.
3: Wow, <laughs> rude. No, no,
0: no. I mean, I think that's a an, an valid story and I think that's really important for people to hear. I also think it's important for people to hear that just because you come to a realization doesn't mean that you get an you award? get awards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's important for that conversation to be ongoing, right? Oh. Agreed.
3: I love that you guys are dragging me.
0: (laughs) We drag you with love,
1: Michael. Oh, poor white man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Says the Kenyan, I love this. (laughs) This comeback was centuries in the making.
0: (laughs) Speaking of no cookies, we spoke to Arwa Mahdawi, who walked us through the creation of her website, rentaminority.com. From this website, I quote, Rent a Minority is a revolutionary new service designed for those, oh shit, moments when you've realized your award show, corporate brochure, conference panel is entirely composed of white men for like the fifth year in a row.
3: (laughs) That's satire if you didn't catch it.
0: Yeah, we caught up with Arwa and here is our conversation.
4: It's a very fine day. My name's Arua Mahdawi. I'm a journalist um, mainly for The Guardian and I also set up a satirical website called Rent and Minority which is kind of poking fun at the way a lot of companies deal with diversity which is normally very superficial, surface level and is really more about, you know, having a a diverse mix of people on the website than actually changing their culture and ensuring it is more meritocratic. Um, And yeah, I feel like with diversity uh, being so surface level, another kind of, if you are a minority, a kind of lose, you're, you're put in a lose-lose situation. Because we've been talking about diversity so much, people sometimes, you know, have told me to my face that I must have only got a job because I'm a minority or they think that you have some kind of special minority card now and like, a, you know, elevator to the top. Which obviously is not the case because we're not doing anything about getting rid of the institutional barriers that, that stop everyone from progressing. So, I, I kind of, um, you know, if you're frustrated, you can either turn to anger or you can like try ch- and channel it into humor. So, I created Rent Minority as a kind of, you know, way of dealing with my frustration about the, the issue but, and, and kind of, you know, making a, a bit of a statement about it. Um,
0: I'm wondering if there. Is a use for this in terms of building allyship for different communities doing lots of different types of diversity and inclusion work?
4: Uh, I will say that I kind of get a little annoyed by the word ally and allyship because, like, nobody should pat themselves on the back for being like, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist. And yeah, I feel like some people feel like they deserve a medal for being like, oh, I'm an ally, LGBT ally, I'm a, you know, Black Lives Matter ally. It's like, no, that's like the basic. Bottom, you know, human decency. So allyship isn't just saying like putting, you know, uh, changing your Twitter profiles so or like pride flags during Pride Month or whatever. It's like actually speaking. Being a true ally means like if you're in a room and someone makes a sexist joke or a racist joke or something, it's not just laughing along. It's actually speaking up and saying something. That's how you use your your position as an ally. Or if you're if you're um you know on a panel and it's all white men, is saying i'm not going to be on this panel unless you have a a better balance is actually using your power for for to actually make a difference or like saying if i if you're in a meeting room and it's all white men like saying no we i'm like we need to do something about this so yeah i mean i i I think that you know then the Ren minority was just a joke but hopefully it does get people to you know to be able to think about the matter a bit more and, and maybe can get people to think about the concept of allyship a little more and like what's actually superficial and what's what's meaningful
0: i'm wondering if you have any moments or anything that you can recollect of something that you might hold up as this is how allyship should work and function
4: i do think i have seen more men being like i'm not going to be on a panel now unless i there is a woman there and some of that is because it's become socially unacceptable so i'm also feel like Things have changed recently, so it has become socially unacceptable to, you know, to, to go and be on a panel that's all men or that's, like, all white people. A lot of times with social media and everything, everyone feels like they have to actually always be commenting, always be talking, always be putting their point of view across. And I think often, like, you should just be listening to other voices, like, allowing, you know, educating yourself rather than asking to be educated is, is one thing. Thing and just like you know, seeking out more people to listen to, and try I, as a journalist, I always make sure I'm quoting, you know, women and uh, people of color, uh, and that I'm, you know, I would hope to think I've never done an article where it's all just like white men that you're quoting. Um, so I think you know, if you're a journalist, then making sure you're elevating other voices that's important. And I think a lot of journalists are doing that that more now as well. So, but yeah, it's tough. It's like a lot of a lot of it is more performative than actual, actually productive.
3: So, Daniela, what in reflecting on the interview you did with Arwa, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, when we were doing it, it struck me the number of times companies came up, mm. um, and I, I really appreciated a lot of what she had to say. I also wonder how much of uh, just putting black people in, or queer people in, or women onto
2: these panels actually changes that much. Uh, I agree with you, but I guess that's kind of like what she's saying in a sense that she's mm-hmm. saying like, yeah, rent a minority for your panel, mm-hmm. yeah, right. She does, she does say that it's just uh, tokenism in a way, and that yeah. it's it's not transformative. Um, but I think we need to like ask ourselves because on one hand. Uh, there are a lot of underemployment for people of color who are living in the north. That's a very that's a really harsh truth and that's impoverishing a lot of communities and mm. we want to combat that and people do need those jobs. At the same time, you know, I think we really need to ask ourselves whether we can actually bring all of ourselves into those jobs. Mm. Or if we need to leave our cultures and our entities and our natural hair and like everything, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. at the door our dreadlocks Uh, yes uh Mm. when we enter those spaces
3: so what are what what are we really looking for
2: i think we're looking for genuine genuine transformation i think when you bringing people of color into a workplace the workplace isn't the same thing that it's used to be if like everybody um if you have genuine inclusion then you're not having the same kind of organization that you used to have Mm -hmm. it's not just the same organization with more melanin it's (laughs) it's it's just a different organization when you've had when you've allowed people or where people have allowed themselves or felt safe to bring also their ideas and their perspectives Mm
0: -hmm. their ideas and their lived experiences into these boardrooms into the the halls of power that we're so often denied
1: access to i think for me what you know comes up most familiar in these kinds of conversations is how often women are included in a space but but things like their emotions become a weapon against mm. them so say for example you can be a female panelist but if somebody says something that is upsetting or challenging and you respond in a certain way it's like oh calm down, Barbara. It's just a conversation. Like I'm already, there's a predisposition for me to be upset mm. because I'm a woman. Exactly. And silencing and, me happens so quickly.
0: And also how much of that is also because you're a black woman, right? Like oh, that that pairing.
1: Do not get me started on the angry <laughs> black woman trope. Mm-hmm. That's just a whole other level of BS.
3: Tone policing.
2: Right. So so basically when, because we, we're talking about allyship, right? A lot of the time we don't actually get anything that's close to relationship, what you get is white saviorism, which is I'm going to give you a job as long as you behave. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a job as long as you shut up or I'm going to give you a job as long as like you please me. Uh, And so we need to avoid, I think, having conversations about, Ally-ship that is actually about centering you know the good white boss mm-hmm. um and that takes away from genuine efforts to end systemic oppressions and like that conversation is so so much more complex than that um you know land has been stolen cultures have been mm-hmm. destroyed um entire civilizations have been threatened and are, are still fighting today for their survival yeah and when we trying to reduce that to conversations about employment. Yes, it's important, but it's a lot broader than this.
0: Of course, yeah.
3: So we caught up with Stefan Pushkash, who is an artist from the Northwest Territories. He's Inuk, and we had a conversation about what allyship looks like from his perspective as an indigenous person.
5: Hi, my name is uh, Stefan Agluvac-Pushkash. I'm uh, Enoch from Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. I've been here in Montreal for almost 11 years. And uh, my background, my professional background, is in visual arts and film.
1: So, Stefan, you're a film producer, a researcher, and an extraordinary visual artist. Tell us a little bit about your work.
5: I don't know if I'd say if I'm an extraordinary visual artist. I usually do a lot of that for myself. Um, My work, I guess, uh, around... Four or five years ago, uh, I was kind of getting disillusioned with the film in general, especially in the economy and the industry here in Quebec. Very difficult to get work here. So um, someone I met kind of like at a house party, you know, kind of getting to know each other. She's founded on Enoch, and, you know, I've got a background in video production. And uh, she said, oh, well, there's this research project at Concordia that you might be interested in because they're looking at... Uh, it's a research project for Montreal Inuit, and they're looking at also making uh, producing videos. So, it might be good to have an Inuk that could actually help other Inuit in the community produce videos. Um, so, when I got into there, I got into researching. That was my first experience uh, being a researcher, and I learned how to research properly. And then, after that, I got into uh, an internship at the Museum of History in Ottawa or in Gatineau. Uh, for eight months, where I learned a lot more about not just research, but about culture, about Indigenous culture. I thought like it was a really great experience because you know I, I had I I got paid full time to for one month research about my own family history. Uh, I got you know a chance to research Indigenous creation stories across Canada for two months. Um, and it really sparked a curiosity in me about culture and, and gave me a better understanding about culture and other Indigenous cultures across Canada. But then also through that, I started seeing uh, misrepresentations of culture um, in my research uh, through the Internet, through old books, through this colonial lens. and. Um, I started seeing so much of it, I just thought like, you know, I should maybe save on to some of this stuff and maybe it might be useful in the future.
1: Mm -hmm, I see. And what inspires you to take up political and cultural issues through art?
5: You know, that was kind of a great starting experience for me to learn about uh, culture and how uh, it is basically a commodity here i find like one of the reasons why i moved to montreal was that there's so much art and culture here um, that i find compared to other cities in canada um, because there's so much art and cultural funding here Uh, but what i learned after living here for a couple of years was that uh, other people's culture is is used as a commodity that something could be bought and sold
1: and so do you see appropriation of inuit culture as an extension or a perpetuation of colonialism in Canada.
5: I, I do see uh, the appropriation of Inuit art is is the extension of colonialism in in Canada, uh, because for a very long time it was something we didn't have control over. It was something that we were told what to do and what to make. I think believe it was from what I've read in, in some history books that you know it was only in the '70s when Inuit artists were starting to act, like starting to say like Hey, can we make uh, our own art?" Can we make art that reflects, you know, our worldview, basically, like Angak Angakernik, uh, you know? Um, and uh, that was only the time where people started to accept Inuit making more contemporary work. Uh, it was only in the '90s and the 2000s where uh, some in- like contemporary Inu- Inuit artists, started to become world famous by depicting contemporary Inuit life.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Who have been your strongest allies in fighting appropriation and misrepresentation?
5: So one of the best allies I've had in the past couple of years uh, is Jennifer Dorner. She's the director of the FOFA Gallery at Concordia University. It's quite funny, I actually met her back in 2005 at this International Film Organization conference and uh, that was just for like a week. And then a couple of years ago when I was talking a lot about Of the North, uh, a racist film against enemy that was produced here in Montreal and, and uh, used public funding and such. Um, she approached me and she's like, oh, I don't know if you remember me, uh, yada yada. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course I remember you. And then she started asking, like, you know, what can I do? What can I do to help? First, I was like, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to do. Uh, And then she gave some suggestions, and one of the suggestions was, how about I can host a talk, a public discussion, and invite people who support this film uh, to come and talk with you? Uh, Because that was one thing that was really lacking in the public Uh, discourse, was actually people who, uh, especially Inuit, who are against this film, uh, were actually in the same room talking to people who supported the film. And she put that together and she didn't take any credit for it. Uh, She put the spotlight on us and gave us a platform to be able to say something, to speak up. Because one of the things here is that the media here is controlled by non-Indigenous people. The media here is controlled by people who are not Inuit. So I often saw articles, and I still see articles today about the film, by non-Indigenous, by non-Inuit, by people who don't know who we are, And who don't interview us, who don't quote us, who leave us out of this discussion, who leave us out of their articles. And it's really quite strange that a lot of people who supported this film say that, oh, we're against censorship, but not realizing that they're censoring our voice by leaving us out. You know, allyship or being an ally, it's not a noun or an adjective, it's a verb. It's something you do. You can't just call yourself an ally and not do anything.
1: Right, right. And so in your experience, what would you say are some of the do's and don'ts of allyship that you've observed?
5: I think uh, allies definitely need to do their homework and to research and to learn. Uh, Oftentimes, you need to know when to be silent and when to listen. And you need to know when to ask questions. You know, don't assume what you know is the reality. Uh, You need to actually start questioning what you know, because oftentimes, especially in this country and probably other countries as well, too, what people know about Inuit has is something that's been perpetuated for hundreds of years and taught by people who don't know Inuit. And and these lessons are not coming from us ourselves, these lessons and and uh, and this education, if there is any education or presence about Inuit is uh, coming from somebody else. Um, so I, I think one good thing that uh, allies can do as well, too, is have a healthy dose of uh, self-doubt as well. Ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? I think another important thing as well, too, is um, how your intent doesn't matter as an ally. What your intent doesn't matter so much. It's, it's the impact of, of your actions that matter. Um, one thing I I, I I think about and I've, I've heard time and time again is about how good intentions pave the road to hell, something like that. The
1: road to hell is paved with good yes,
5: intentions. The, the yes, yeah, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and I've seen that a lot in working with community organizations or working in communities and stuff. There, there's some people who have really really good intentions and they're good people but they do bad things and they don't realize that because they know they're good people. They know what they're doing is good, and they don't realize it. And they don't have that mindfulness or that self awareness to to actually take a step back and say, "Am I doing? Uh, and what am I doing that is helpful, or is this helpful or not? Is this hurtful?" Um, I think that's really important: is is to question your intentions, but also question your impact and what you're doing as well. Um, I really liked what John Rost and Saul wrote in The Comeback, which is probably a great book for allies to read. Back in 2014, he wrote that, or it was published. Um, He said that he thinks that there is a new mainstream form of racism in Canada, and it's the racism of pity or of sympathy, where you can go to a film screening uh, and watch the plight of the Indian unfold before your eyes on, on the screen. And you, and you shed a tear, and then you can say to yourself, well, see that I feel bad about these people, therefore I'm not racist. Uh, but, you know, maybe that can help you get to sleep at night, but if you get up the next day and you do nothing about what's happening, then your complicity is perpetuating this uh, institutionalized racism or, or oppression that's happening. Nothing's changing. The only thing that's changed is that you feel better about yourself, you know. So I, I think that is, uh, you know, I didn't understand that completely until more recently uh, in the past year where I've had a lot of organizations uh asked me to come talk about these things, these painful experiences, and not realize that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a toll to this. There's an emotional toll for me and, and a lot of effort for me to do this. Um, so I, I think that's one good resource, I think, for a lot of people to read if they want to be good allies, and especially here in Canada is The Comeback by John Saul. Another one I think is The Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. Uh, that's another good book to read as well. And I, and I think another important thing, too, one thing I've noticed is some people who I, I guess might self-identify as allies. Um, you know, since I've spoken up about things like Of the North or ungavagen or something, people some people send me stuff of other racist things. And they're like, oh, well, did you see this racist cartoon strip? Or did you see this other racist product uh, that misrepresents Inuit? And for me, it's like I don't need to see that. I've already seen a lot of that. Um, I don't, and, and it's great that you're woke. It's great that you see you you see that that discrimination, not racism, now. But it's actually hurting me more to be reminded on a regular basis of oh, here's some more racism. Here's some more discrimination. Here's some more misrepresentation. Um, that type of conversation you should be having with other settlers with other non-indigenous canadians because you know you're basically preaching to the choir when you're telling me about this but not just that but it's and sometimes it's more hurtful for me to be kept reminded about these things that and plus sometimes people expect me to do something about it and i think well you know you should be doing something about it especially in the society where oftentimes white non-indigenous people have a stronger or more powerful voice than i do yeah yeah like i I don't need to i don't need another example to know that it exists i already like it's a lived experience you know i don't i don't need to be reminded of it instead you should be taking that experience and that new awareness and teach others who are not aware about it yeah
2: I've been living in Montreal for a couple of years and Inuit culture is completely invisibilized down here. There's basically no visibility in the media and although there there's quite a lot of people here there's no services as well at the city level that are specific to Inuit. And it's it's really funny how as well, you know, as Quebecers, people always have conversation around obviously sovereignty and independence, not even questioning which land they're on. There are so many ways um, in which you're only going to access information if you already have some sort of an awareness, you need to be looking for it specifically. I'd like to think that it's a little bit better in some other parts of the country. But um, yeah, what do you think, Daniela?
0: I don't know. I'm an immigrant. I came here in 2003, and I lived in Vancouver ever since. And one thing that i did notice growing up in vancouver and then coming to some sort of understanding of the way canada works as this uh colonial project is this pecking order that's established so fast between immigrants and the indigenous populations in the area where because we're all operating in the structure of white supremacy which is capitalism we're all trying to get somewhere and make it better for ourselves, make it better for the kids that we brought here. Um, There is this almost hierarchy that gets established immediately upon landing about at least we're better than those people. Those people are all of these stereotypes that are just so ingrained in Canadian culture. Uh, So I don't know if it's better in other places, maybe different places from Vancouver it is, but that's been my experience. And... I think although I embody the lived experience of a black queer immigrant woman, all these boxes, check, 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 I definitely do not have all the experiences in the world. And there are places that I can also be an ally, places I also mess up a lot and places that I need to work on being better in.
2: Yeah, I I do see that at the same time. I'd like to think, and I think historically, right, over the Americas, although there's some groups that have been using these t- tactics that you refer to, of like, I'm going to, instead of dismantling white supremacy, I'm going to make the point that I deserve to be part of whiteness. Mm. Uh, but it's harder to do for black communities than it is to do for other groups. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, across, across the continent, there's been, there's been this history of black and indigenous people you know, fighting together, escaping slavery together, um, being in solidarity with each other. Um, I just wonder, you know, what would happen politically in Canada if people were more aware of this history, mm-hmm. uh, instead of trying to be the model model immigrant or model minority, <laughs> where they really knew what revolutions were made possible oh. across the Americas. Oh, Uh, exactly. Out of Black Indigenous Alliances.
0: Yeah, and I think there's such an opportunity there, especially in Canada, that has, I think, been tapped into in many different ways in many different parts of the country. But I think just a wider understanding of what that could look like. And although our experiences are obviously very different, I think there are some similarities around experiencing colonialism, a lot of Black people not necessarily being here by choice, but also participating in these structures in ways that we may not be conscious of. Have you ever had a nightmare? Yes sir. What's a nightmare? It's a
2: very Can you remember one? Yes sir. What happened in it?
1: This entire conversation is leading me to wonder whether allyship in itself is a spectrum because I'm totally aware of the fact that people engage at the level at which they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be a a good ally, of course, you want to, you know, be out in the streets, maybe in the protest and whatever, but that's not maybe available for everyone. Is there a spectrum of allyship actually or can somebody feel like, yes, I'm participating if they're not at the extremes?
3: I think that's a great question. I wonder the same thing.
0: Hmm. And I think there's a lot playing in as well around the ability, like the physical ability to be there, too, Mm -hmm. Um, and that it can take different forms and can look different ways. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. I think about my own lived experience as a black, African, cisgender woman. And I have to confess that before I came to Canada, I was not aware of how difficult the trans experience is. And so I suddenly find myself in a space where those issues are real or, say, maybe more present than my home country. And I want to participate in that. I want to contribute to being an ally or be an ally to the trans community. So I'm seeing how different parts of myself are not necessarily privileged but are also not necessarily oppressed and so I can also participate in other people's struggle and I can be there with them but I might not be able to be there with them you know in every march um, giving money donating to every cause and whatever but like the little that I'm able to do does that disqualify me as being able to be proud of being an ally
3: I try to think about the ways in which the talents and skill sets that I have intersect with my privilege in how I operate as an ally. So, for example, I'm no longer um, a hip-hop artist per se. Uh, instead, I work to create space for upcoming hip-hop artists through education. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of how I'm, that's where I'm at right now, right? But that's not like the end point. I'm sure I'll be somewhere else in a few years.
2: So, so in a way, it is a journey, but it's also not about pride. Um, it's not necessarily about something that, you know makes you feel good about yourself it's just something that you do because it's the right thing to do um
1: you're right actually sorry uh, allow me to retract it's not about the pride it's just about feeling like i'm contributing i want to contribute right. but you know so if i'm not doing all the things i listed before am i not actually doing the right thing and i'm only saying this because i imagine that there's many people who are going to listen to us having this conversation and are wondering okay maybe i'm not on the forefront but am i doing enough the answer is we are probably not all doing enough because oh, if we no. were there would be no oppression in the world <laughs> mm. right <laughs> exactly. but but i
2: think but i still think it's interesting that you brought up the pride and i don't think it's a mistake at all and even just like the reverse of that the whole notion of guilt often people get stuck in like am i Yeah, this kind of self-reflection that takes away from the energy from action. Am I doing enough? Am I being this? Am I being a shitty person because I'm not doing this? And yes, um, being self-aware is important, but it can be sometimes it's so ever-consuming that it takes away from from actual action.
3: That's where a lot of white folks are at. It's like, well, I I was just born into this situation.
2: It's not my fault.
3: I didn't create it.
2: Or oh my god, my ancestors are full awful, so I'm not never gonna get out of bed ever again, and that's not helping anyone. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs>
1: I refuse to believe that there is a single white person who thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: no, but, but, but seriously, it's like, fine, you didn't make the situation, but here we are, and we're all responsible for the ways in which we interact with with our environment. And mm-hmm. recognizing, you know, water is wet, right? Like, what? <laughs> Recon- like, if for real, people. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with white folks where they just try to deny racism, period, right? It's a colorblind thing. Mm. And it's like, what world are you living in?
0: It's colorblind until you need to call the police for someone looking suspicious. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but,
2: but, but this whole notion of colorblindness or, anyway, it's just, it's just I, I'd say even our friendships, the, the ones that we've developed over, over the year and just like all of us living together, there's obviously a lot of difference Amongst us in mm-hmm. terms of situation, social, social situation in many ways. But we're doing our best. Um, and sometimes we fail, but we are doing our best in terms of not being blind to those differences. And at least for me, it's made a huge difference in terms of like how we're able to trust each other and be in an honest, positive relationship with one another. Um, because if you don't see my differences or you don't see who I am, um then you don't see my experiences and you don't actually get me Mm. and the other way around if i'm trying to you know like you in spite of who you are then i'm not actually liking you Mm. so so yeah so for me i don't know if it's about allyship at this point but at least just like building genuine trust that allows then for allyship Mm. is about um seeing people for who they are uh with everything that that entails
0: This is the final episode of RUDE's pilot season.
3: So sad.
0: So sad. If you want more, we're going to need some cash money.
3: Oh.
1: <laughs> Funders, here's looking at you.
3: On that note,
1: we would like to thank our sponsors. A big thank you to Taking It Global for your support and engagement and genuine enthusiasm. And a very heartfelt thank you the Jean Sauvet Foundation for providing the experience that made this podcast necessary and possible.
3: We also want to send a shout-out to our team, Amaya Attil, Kara Shepherd Jones, and Nicole Lever. And a big thank you as well to Simon Panrucker and A.A. Alto for the tunes.
1: The views expressed by our
3: interviewees do not necessarily reflect those of our hosts or our sponsors. We'll see you guys next time. We'll see you all next time. Gender inclusive. Gender inclusive terms on season two. I'm Barbara. I'm Emily. I'm Daniela. I'm Michael. And this was Rude.